0: This morning, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Many years ago, the late R.C. Sproul, who's one of my favorite theologians, uh, wrote a book titled The Mystery of the Holy Spirit. And he led with this quote, which I thought about many, many times. Quote, the Holy Spirit leaves no footprints in the sand. The Holy Spirit leaves no footprints in the sand. And there's an obvious reference there to an image you're all pretty familiar with. You've probably seen two sets of footprints going down a beach, side by side, until one set disappears. And the implication is that Jesus was walking beside me, and when it came to one of those periods of my life where I just couldn't walk on my own, he carried me in his arms. That, that image has been around a long time. It's a little corny, right? But it's also a beautiful word picture of the ministry that Christ has to us. But here's the thing about the Spirit. He isn't physical like Jesus is. He's not physical. He doesn't have feet that would make footprints, in the sand. That was Sproul's point when he said it. The Spirit is like the wind, Jesus said to Nicodemus. It blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. The wind, just like the Spirit of God, cannot be controlled, nor can it be fully understood. You see how it affects other things, but you can't physically see it. And that means For us, the Holy Spirit can seem elusive, He can seem mysterious to us, but at the same time we know from the objective truth of God's Word that He is very real and He is very powerful just as God the Father and God the Son are. The problem that we run into with the Holy Spirit because He's so mysterious is we as human beings tend to make Him whatever we want Him to be. And we tend to ascribe things to Him that in reality are just what we want for ourselves. We tend to actually seek Him when we're desperate, when we're in need. And then when things start to go in our way, then we tend to forget Him because we can't see Him. And just as we fashion Him according to our own desires, at times we're all guilty of, in reality, blaspheming Him. Treating Him as less than who He is, less than fully God. Treating Him as some type of lesser divine being, certainly worthy of less attention, less worship than God the Father or Jesus whom we love. So the Spirit is greatly misunderstood in our day, and whenever the church has a chance to talk about the Spirit and to correct things, it's good to take that opportunity because this is important. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit, what we call pneumatology, is not some distant teaching that we can just sort of put in the corner in some dusty old systematic theology book. In terms of the Trinitarian persons, the Spirit is the one who is, you might say, most near to us. Indeed, He is within us. So he is the one examining our thoughts and our motives. He hears the words that we speak. He is a witness to the things that we do. The Spirit is our our teacher and our guide. He is the one who both convicts us when we stumble into sin and comforts us in our trials. So our passage for this morning has much to say about the ministry of the Spirit and also much to say about the kingdom of God, how, as we are in in the book of John, how we're in the midst of this this soon-to-be transition From the Old Covenant to the New, as Jesus is now facing being arrested and taken away for trial. So grab your Bibles. We're going to go to John chapter 16. If you're new with us, we have been working our way for years now through the book of John. We're getting there. We're patient, right? God's timing. John chapter 16. If you were with us last Sunday, we talked about how a Christian ought to expect some measure of hatred and persecution from the world and Jesus' big point last week to his disciples is don't be surprised by this don't be caught off guard as if this is something strange that were happening to you Paul says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted that is a promise it's a promise in some measure we're all going to experience the hatred of the world and persecution And that was the final warning that Jesus wanted to leave with his guys. On this night when he is about to be taken away and let off for trial, this is what he wanted to warn them about. Know that after I'm taking away, once I'm gone, you are going to be in their crosshairs. So don't be surprised. If the world hates you, he said, know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you because you belong to the world. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, yeah. Of course, the world is going to hate you. And he said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. That is true for us as well. So then we dipped our toes into chapter 16, where you're at right now, and we heard this in verse one. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. In other words, I'm telling you this so that when that hatred comes, you won't stumble into sin. You won't fall into fear or doubt when it comes. Worse, that you won't fall away from the faith. So Jesus says, I want you to know what's coming. Look at verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Expect it. In other words, they're going to try to ruin your life. They're going to try to take away your worship. To bar you from coming into the synagogue to worship the Lord. They will pit your family against you. They're going to muster all of the power and authority that they have to try to make you a pariah among your own people. Know that that's coming. It says, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. In other words, that's how spiritually blind your enemies are. That's how captive they are to the devil. That they will think that they are serving God by killing you. Verse 3, these things they will do, why? Because they have not known the Father or me. So this is a great lesson. No matter how, how much people profess to know God, how religious they look on the outside, By their wicked deeds, the truth about these people will be revealed. They do not know God. They do not. Verse 4, but these things I've spoken to you so that when their hour comes, when they have power over you, you may remember that I told you about them. So Jesus says, let these words strengthen you. When this happens, you'll look back and remember what I said on this night, and you'll be comforted by the fact that, yes, I knew this was coming, that I'm sovereign over all of it, and I'm with you in the midst of it. So now we're going to push forward into this morning's passage. We're going to look at the second half of verse 4 all the way through verse 15. And just let me give you a simple outline of where we're headed. The real meat of this passage is in verses 8 to 15. What we're going to see is Jesus discussing the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whom he will send once he is taken away. And when the Spirit comes, he has two very unique ministries, one to the world and one to the believers in the church verses 8 to 11 talk about his ministry to the world, verses 12 to 15 his ministry to the church. But before we get there, let's walk through the dialogue that sort of sets up that meaty section starting with the second half of verse 4. Jesus says, "These things, meaning his warnings about persecution, these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you." Now, that is an interesting explanation from the Lord because you might be you might read the gospel narratives And be tempted to ask this question. Hey, Jesus, you were with these guys for three years. Couldn't you have talked more about persecution and not waited to the very last night to drop this really heavy truth on them? You'd be tempted to ask that question. But first of all, Jesus had talked about persecution. You do see it early on in his ministry in Matthew 5 and Mark 10, for example. So the, the idea wasn't completely foreign to them. But you have to acknowledge that this night was different. There was an urgency in the air on this night. And God's timing is always perfect for the need of the moment, right? And so in this moment, in this sense of tension and urgency, dropping this truth on his disciples was going to make a serious impact. It's going to bear fruit later on. Imagine if Jesus had done otherwise. Let's just say for three years, all he did was talk constantly about persecution. What would he have produced in his, in his followers? Nothing but fearful men constantly looking over their shoulder, constantly worrying, anxious, and, 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 and wondering, well, when is this going to come? And, and missing the bigger picture that Jesus was trying to teach them. So, in fact, if you, you want to think of it this way, parents, um, let's say you have to take your child to the dentist. Uh, exactly, <laughs> right? It's every parent, those dentist appointments are terrible. Would you spend weeks and weeks, day after day, for months, for months, Telling your child about how painful the dentist is going to be. That would not be wise. That would not be helpful. What you would do is briefly mention it at one point, and then on the day of the appointment, brace them for what's coming. That's sort of what Jesus does here. Up until this point, Jesus had been able to sort of shield his friends from all of this hatred, right? He had taken the hatred of the religious leaders, he had sort of absorbed it in himself, and he had kept the twelve from becoming targets and by the way we're going to see him do this one last time when we get to chapter 18 the famous story of jesus being arrested in the garden we're going to see the soldiers move against him and they're going to say jesus is going to say to them hey who do you seek and they respond jesus the nazarene and he's going to say this i am he so if you seek me let these go their way so right up to the end we're going to see jesus putting the good of his disciples above himself shielding them as much as he possibly can Now look at verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me. Okay, I'm going back to the Father, right? And none of you ask me, where are you going? Now this is an interesting thing. Some New Testament scholars raise an objection here. Is that really true? Has not one of the 12 asked Jesus where he's going? Actually, that has happened. Back in chapter 13, Jesus said, I'm with you only a little while longer. And Peter had risen up as he always does. He's the first one to sort of, you know, Ask questions. He says, Lord, where are you going? So how do we reconcile this? Well, as usual, the answer when you see apparent contradictions is to look at context and to look at motive. Back in chapter 13, Peter's question was not motivated by gathering information about where Jesus was actually going to. Peter was thinking about himself. He was protesting the fact that Jesus was about to leave and to leave him and the other guys behind. So the motive of Peter's question is, Lord, where are you going and can I follow you? That was the point. But Jesus means something different here in chapter 16. This is a gentle rebuke. He says, now I'm going away and not one of you is asked, where are you actually going? As if you care about me. Where are you going to end up, Jesus? Are you going to be okay? Can you explain this to us? That's not what they have done. They're not concerned about Jesus at all in this minute. They're concerned about themselves. And by the way, I understand that. I'd be feeling the same thing. But that's their motive, right? Here's the best word picture about how to explain this because this has been raised as an objection to the text. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, imagine a boy who had been planning to go fishing with his dad for months. But on the day of the fishing trip, the dad is suddenly called away to an emergency work meeting and the trip gets canceled. What does the boy say? Oh, Dad, where are you going? Now, does that kid really care about the location of the meeting? Of course not. He's he's asking the question out of a sense of disappointment. So that's what Peter's doing as well in chapter 13. What's in 16 here is very different. Jesus is saying, guys, wake up. You're not even thinking about your master. You're only thinking about yourselves. Verse 6. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So, this is Jesus being gracious to his friends. He could have lingered on this point and said, look, do you guys not understand how selfish you're being right now? Not one of you seems to be concerned about me, but only yourselves. But as we see Jesus do time and time again, he condescends to the level of his friends. And he comes down. in spite of, By the way, in spite of his own dread about what he's facing, and that dread was real, we're gonna find that out in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's in the back of his mind. He knows what's coming. In spite of that, Jesus extends himself to empathize with his friends, to understand the sorrow and the grief that they're feeling in this moment. Now, we come to verse seven. Jesus is gonna come back to the primary reason why they should be at peace in the midst of this. Look, I'm leaving you guys. You cannot follow, but here's why you should be at peace, because I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Look at verse seven. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage or to your benefit that I go away. What? I mean, you can imagine Peter. Ooh, ooh. I got a question about that. That doesn't seem to make sense. That I should be glad that you're going away? He says for I if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I'm not going to reintroduce you to the Holy Spirit in detail. We already covered this back in chapter 14. If you missed that sermon, the date on it was September 18th. It was titled Numa And you can find that on our uh, website and on our YouTube channel as well, just to get the basics about the Holy Spirit. But as we talked about in the original Greek, the Spirit is called parakletos, right? Or we we say paraclete in the English. The New American Standard translates it helper, but in some of your Bibles you'll see counselor or comforter or advocate. But as we saw back in September, a parakletos in common usage in that day referred to a legal assistant, or a legal advocate, somebody who helps another person in court, sometimes as a key witness. That's what that word means. And recall back in chapter 14 how Jesus referred to him as another helper. You cannot underestimate the importance of that term, another helper. What he means is the Spirit is going to be just like me. And that would have been amazingly, immensely important to the disciples. He says, I'm sending you one who has the exact same nature as me, the same essence and substance as I have, meaning that He is fully God. He has the same attributes. He has the same compassion. He has the same love for you. So, as I promise, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm sending you one just like me. This would have been very important for the disciples. And the reality is, as we look back at the New Testament, even, even as Christians today, we all have two helpers we have the Spirit of God within us, and we have the Son of God who sits at the right hand of the Father. Both of them are called helpers. John, in his first epistle, uses that same term, parakletos, and applies it to Jesus. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So as the Spirit is a helper, we also have Jesus as our helper as well. So this is is all good and well for us, you know, to, to look back... We have the benefit of hindsight, don't we? 2,000 years of study and analysis to get this right, to intellectually process the fact that the disciples should not have been stressed that night because Jesus was going to send the helper. That's easy for us. But put yourself in the shoes, the sandals of those 11 guys in that moment. Think about this. Jesus is your most valued friend. You have walked through life with him for years now. Ups and downs and the messes of life and the victories, all of it, right? He is your rabbi, but so much more. You have depended upon him for everything for three years. Listen, you have banked your entire future on this guy. And now he says to you, not only am I going away, not only you can't follow, but what does he say? It's to your benefit that I go away. Could you have accepted that? I don't think we can imagine how hard it would have been to hear those words. Guys, it's to your advantage that I leave you. Wow. But Jesus makes it clear. He has to go away for the Spirit to come, right? Not that it would be metaphysically impossible for both the the Spirit and the Son to minister to God's people simultaneously. They do, as the one true God, right? But the point is, Jesus has in mind at this point that they're approaching this critical juncture in human history. Everybody in that moment was standing on the precipice of a new dispensation, In god's plan for the ages what we call the last days or the church age or the age of the gentiles whatever you want to call it the time was about to come for that age to be ushered in for god's people to enter into this new and greater covenant rooted in the blood of christ that's what they're facing in this moment but first we know that a number of dominoes have to fall in the story first of all god the son has to go away he has to die and atone for sin, right, by, by physically dying on the cross. Then he has to be raised to life, victory over death, and to return to the Father's right hand. That has to happen first, right? And once he's ascended, then the Spirit will come, and on that day, we read about it in Acts 2, right, the day of Pentecost, on that day, the curtain sort of rises on this new age, this whole new age, right, this, this new age of history, of the history of salvation and the going forth of the gospel, to the ends of the earth so this is a big moment that we're reading about I know we all know that but it's good to step back and go this is a big moment one of the problems is at this point the disciples are still completely clueless and by the way you would have been too and I would have been as well but they're clueless right but as you read forward in the story you begin to see the disciples start to connect the dots but it doesn't happen until Jesus goes away this is why he has to go First, of course, they're going to go through all of the fear and the terror and the grief of watching their Lord be crucified. But then they go through this unimaginable joy of an empty tomb and then appearances of the master in his glorified state. Imagine the roller coaster, right, that these guys go through. And then they hear Jesus say in Acts 1, fellas, stay in Jerusalem because something big is about to happen. He says, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you'll receive what? Power. you receive power when he comes upon you. And then the Spirit comes in Acts 2, and guess what? They finally begin to understand what's going on. All the things Jesus said, all the promises, they finally start to connect for these guys. Now they see the nature and the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're going to understand, yes, it is to my benefit that Jesus went away. It is to my advantage that he was taken. But they had to get there, right? In this moment, they're clueless, but they're going to get there. Listen, we have to understand that Jesus was just one localized man walking around the land of Israel, right? He was sent, in his own words, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, one localized man. The Spirit's not localized. The Spirit is not physical in the flesh. He's going to bear witness to Christ, not just in Israel, but to the entire world, right? Even to the ends of the earth. And so suddenly to these guys, it was obvious When Jesus has said, you're going to do even greater works after I'm gone. You'll do greater works than I did. And they began to understand. So the lesson for us is, and this is not in any way to downplay the importance of Jesus 30 plus years, right? Walking in the flesh. But the dispensation of the indwelling spirit is a more fruitful manifestation of God's salvation than was even possible during those 30 plus years that Jesus walked in the flesh. It's a better situation. It is a broader scope of the gospel because Jesus went away. Does that make sense? We have to know that. Okay, let's look at the two unique ministries that the Holy Spirit has. First of all, let's look at his relationship to the world. Verse eight. And he, when he comes, will what? Convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, as Christians, we know what that word convict means. We we, that's part of our, our Christianese, right? We use that term all the time. We say, I'm really convicted about this or that. And what we mean by that is the Holy Spirit has shown me something about my life that I, just, I need to address, and that's good. But first and foremost, you have to understand that the word convict, even in the Greek, is a legal term. When a prosecuting attorney presents a case against a lawbreaker and, and his, his case is so irrefutable, we say the jury should convict that person. And that fits verse eight here. One of the Spirit's roles is to present an irrefutable case against all of humanity who are guilty before God as what? As lawbreakers. We've all broken God's law. And the ministry of the Spirit to the world is to show the world irrefutably that they are lawbreakers before a holy God. But the word also carries an additional nuance in the New Testament. It's the idea of exposing something, exposing the shortcomings of humanity. In fact, in in John 3:20, Jesus says, "Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for they fear that their deeds will be exposed." Same word in the Greek, convict, expose. So here in John 16, Jesus is saying that once he returns to the Father, the Spirit's going to come and he's going to be sent not just into the hearts of believers, but to the world as well. And he will play this crucial role of exposing to the world just how dark and lost they are. That's one of his ministries. Now, that doesn't mean that the world's going to respond well. He is going to convict the world of these things does not mean that the world is going to respond well. The Spirit's work in the world is not always effectual in the sense that it brings everybody to salvation. That is going to depend upon the Father both choosing and drawing. And that's for a whole other sermon. But it does mean that this conviction is going to separate all of the world all of humanity into one of two camps. On the one hand repentance and salvation. On the other hardness of heart and judgment. So we can confidently say that all who are saved have been convicted of sin but not all who've been convicted of sin are saved. But the spirit has done his job in the world now sometimes according to God's sovereign will the Spirit's conviction of the world is effectual and people get saved and this is how it normally happens the Spirit empowers the witness of the church and drives the truth of the gospel into the conscience of people of the world and one of the great examples in, in, in the flow of what we're talking about this morning is the day of Pentecost and Peter's sermon how many of you guys have ever stopped to really study Peter's sermon in Acts 2 every preacher has done this in fact you get it in preaching class they'll, they'll, they'll make you study it so it's really important that moment when Peter stands up and preaches to the Jews on the day of Pentecost is one of those moments where the dots must have come together for the disciples they had stayed in Jerusalem they had, the power of the Holy Spirit had come upon them just as Jesus promised and now they watch Peter right? this guy they had lived with for three years Peter the knucklehead right They watch this guy stand up and preach to this crowd with what? With power. With real power. If you look at his sermon, you'll find out it's actually pretty basic. What does he do? He quotes scripture. Thumbs up. He points people to Jesus, talks about his resurrection and ascension, then connects those events with more scripture, and then he lays out an indictment. He says, Let the house of Israel know that god has made him both lord and christ this jesus whom you crucified mike drop that's what you call a closing statement in the preaching world and what happened the text says that the audience the hearers were pierced to the heart that is the ministry of the holy spirit to the world he convicted these men of the world unbelievers of their sin he exposed them and 3000 people trusted in jesus that day and got baptized Amazing! So through a, a single sermon on a single day, the church grew more in that one, I don't know how long it took, less than an hour. The church grew more than it had all the three years that Jesus walked the earth. Right? What an advantage. What greater works were being done, even though Jesus had gone away. You see what I'm, seeing, what I'm saying? Do you see what the disciples were seeing? And listen, friends, there's no human explanation for this. As I said, the sermon, if you went to a modern-day preacher and said, take a look at Peter's sermon and and grade it, they would say, well, that's not very clever. It's not very well-crafted. That's the favorite word of preachers now. It's well-crafted, right? It's just super, it's not extraordinary is what they would say. But the Holy Spirit had driven the truth home like an arrow into the consciences of these men, and they saw their unbelief, and they saw their rebellion, and they came face-to-face with God. And that was not through the eloquence of Peter. Remember, what was Peter? He was a fisherman. You know how fishermen talk? He had no formal training in homiletics. That response was produced by the mighty power of God. The spirit in his words combined with the scripture. And that is the lesson that every preacher has to learn in his ministry career. That it's never my words. It's never my words. My words have no power at all to transform. It's only when the Spirit works through the Scriptures and me being a mouthpiece, that's it, just a vessel that people's lives are transformed. Only the Spirit can do that. read a great uh, example of this in my study time this week, just as another example. In the Great Awakening that took place in Great Britain about the time of our Civil War, there's this this great eyewitness account of how God was moving among the people of Scotland in that day. And I'll I'll put the quote on the screen because I think it's so interesting. This eyewitness says this, those of you who are at ease have little conception of how terrifying a sight it is when the Holy Spirit is pleased to open a man's eyes to see the real state of his heart. Do Do we ever think in those terms how terrifying it is for a man to come face to face with who he really is? He goes on, men who were thought to be And who thought themselves to be good religious people have been led to search the foundation upon which they were resting and to have found it rotten. That they were self satisfied, resting on their own goodness and not upon Christ. Many turned from open sin to lives of holiness, some weeping for joy that their sins were now forgiven. What a powerful testimony to what the Spirit does when it gets hold of a man. So the Spirit moved in the hearts of these. These these folks were like the Pharisees of old. They were super religious. They were walking through all the religiosity they thought they needed, but they weren't even saved. They weren't saved. They were of the world, but the Spirit opened their eyes to their foolishness. The Spirit showed them that they were building a foundation on the sand, that it wouldn't stand, and they finally turned to Christ with great joy. Praise the Lord, right? That's what we pray for. We pray for in this community that people would be confronted by the Spirit in this way. And that they would turn to Christ and be saved. Now, verses 9 to 11 give us three specific areas where the Spirit convicts. Let's look at these briefly. Verse number 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The Spirit convicts the world concerning sin. Now, obviously, man's conscience is bent towards defending itself whenever sin gets raised. I mean, if you go out there and witness to people, you'll find this a lot. You talk about the word sin, and they go, like, No, I don't don't want, no, 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 no. no, I don't like that word. I don't believe in it. It's a defensive mechanism that most people in the world have. Now, they may know deep down that they're sinning. They may know that, but they've got to run from that light because they prefer the darkness. So don't shine that light on me. Or it's possible that they're just willfully ignorant, that their consciences have been so seared over time because they've rejected the truth, that they're no longer sensitive to the fact that they sin. You'll bump into both of those things in the world so the Holy Spirit ministers to the world by exposing the whole spectrum of the world's false ideas about about sin and about the consequences of sin he shows them that notice what Jesus points to in verse 9 he points to the the essence of all sin right which is unbelief because they do not believe in me he convicts them the spirit of their need to believe in Jesus as Savior because that's the one sin that's going to keep you out of heaven right to reject the Messiah. So we see once again, just as Jesus' ministry in his day was a dividing ministry, right? Dividing people into one or two camps, the Spirit continues that work. When he exposes sin to the world, a man has two choices, right? He can run from that light like a cockroach trying to escape, or he can move towards the light, repent and be saved. But it's a dividing ministry. Verse 10, And concerning righteousness... Because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. Now, this is interesting to me. The world has developed its own standard for righteousness. They'll talk about it, right? And it's hopelessly inadequate. But every person you out there has got some standard that they believe in. And guess what? Every time, it's just a little bit lower than them. Like. I, I'm a little bit higher than my standard. That's the way we do it, right? We, we, we just create our own standards of righteousness and we say, I'm just over that, that threshold. So the Spirit comes and convicts the world of what the true standard is. There's only one standard of righteousness. It's Christ. He is the standard. Why? Because he lived the sinless life in full obedience to God. That makes him the only one who is, who is capable of atoning for sin because he has no sin of his own. He is the only one, right? So here in verse 10, Jesus points back to his ascension to the Father as evidence. See, when the Father received the Son after his resurrection, and uh, he ascends, and the Father puts a stamp of approval on the Son by seating him again at the right hand of power, right? That's the demonstration of his approval, that, that Jesus had perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. He had proven himself to be a worthy sacrifice. That makes him the standard for righteousness, And that's what the Spirit does. Verse 11, And concerning judgment, because the ruler or prince of this world has been judged. Now, it won't take you long to look around and see that the world has a standard of judgment as well, and it's ridiculously warped and ungodly. It's all around us. And of course it is, because it's sponsored by the one who has been lying from the beginning. Right? It's all sponsored by the one who, right in the very beginning, tried to incite Human beings against their own creator. And so everybody in the world who echoes the value of, of Satan and follows in his path proves that he is their true father. And Jesus here says very clearly that the devil's already been judged. And by the way, he says this even before he goes to the cross. He's been judged. But very soon at the cross, Satan's doom is going to be sealed. And even though he still can roam around and, and do his thing, he is right now a defeated and sentenced enemy. Now, take note of something important here. A question that I I just briefly touched on a a moment ago. How does the Spirit do this? How does the Spirit convict the world? Are you ready for this? Because this is the big application. Look around at the people with you here today. He does it through us. Right? Now, he's God he's sovereign he could he could he can convict the world through any way he chooses because he's sovereign right yes he can use dreams and visions and miracles to do that but the ordinary means of operation that the spirit uses to convict the world is the witness of the church and the witness of individual believers like us we are tools in his hand to show the world what sin judgment and righteousness look like we have to communicate that that's why the testimony of our lives matters Wherever we go, our lives matter. That's why the reputation of the local church matters, right? That's why we have to speak up when gospel opportunities come our way. It's our calling and our mission to be faithful and ready so that the Holy Spirit can use us to show the world exactly what sin is, to show the world exactly who the standard of righteousness is, to show the world exactly how judgment will be rendered in the end. We've got to be His vessels. Make sense? So our testimony matters. Even as we come into Stevenson Ranch or back here, our testimony in this community matters as a local church, right? Because we want to be vessels in the hand, tools in the hand of the Holy Spirit to show them what it looks like. That's our calling. It's great that we're building this great fellowship here, but there's this great mission out there. And we've got to be a good testimony. Okay, last thing. What about the Spirit's ministry to the church? Look at verse 12. And I picture Jesus pausing here, looking at his guys. And he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I mean, this is a tense moment. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He says, I know you can't bear anymore. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So in that moment, Jesus knows that his disciples are, you know, they're up to here, right? They're, any, anything more and they're just going to be overwhelmed, right? And so Jesus is gracious in this moment. What he doesn't do is say, all right, guys, look, um, Judas is gone to betray me. Soldiers are on the way. I've got like, hey, check his watch. I've got like five minutes to get another three lessons crammed into your brain. <laughs> no, he's gracious towards them, right? And he doesn't feel the need to rush it. You know Why? Because he knows that very soon the Holy Spirit is going to come and continue the work that he had started. And that is the key to understand here. The Holy Spirit is going to come and continue this teaching ministry that Jesus had begun with these 11 men. And when he comes, he will guide them into all the truth that they need. Everything that they need to be ambassadors and missionaries for the gospel, the Spirit will guide them into that truth. Now, One of the important things to see here, and this is where our charismatic and Pentecostal friends sometimes make an error. This isn't a promise that when the Spirit comes, He's going to deliver all kinds of fresh new truths and give new special revelation to the 11. In fact, that's what the rest of the verse says. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, for He will not speak on His own initiative. He won't do that. What will He do? Whatever He hears, He will speak. And he will disclose or declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me, that's Jesus, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. So the Spirit will fill out the complete revelation for these guys of who Jesus is, what he's accomplished. He's not going to do his own thing. He's not some free-roaming free you know, being that's just going to do his own thing, as we would say. He's going to listen to the Son and speak all that the Son gives to him. And pass it on to you now what we see here and this is so great if you've been with us throughout the John series how many times have we seen Jesus say I only say and do what the Father tells me over and over and over again so what we see here is is sort of an unfolding for us a little peek behind the curtain of the relationships within the, Trinit- the Trinitarian persons and it's really quite beautiful so just as Jesus never spoke or acted on his own initiative He said exactly what the Father told him to say. He did exactly what the Father told him to do. Now we see that the Spirit acts in the same way with regard to the Son. That's what's being communicated here. Now he may use different ways and many different gifts to do that, but he has one purpose and that's to reveal Jesus. That is his ministry. And just as Jesus never took glory away from the Father, but always said, look at the Father. Remember, over and over again. He said, "He pointed people to the Father. Now the Spirit's going to do the same thing. Look at the Son. I'm here to reveal Jesus. He takes no glory away from Jesus. He shines the light on God the Son. He illuminates Him as the Messiah and Savior of the world. And you see a hint of this in our last verse, verse 15. Jesus says, All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that He, the Spirit, takes of mine and will disclose it to you. In other words, the Father has given the Son all things, and now the Spirit takes those things from the Son and communicates it to the disciples. So we see this passing along, right, of all truth. And you see in that not just oneness in purpose, but you see oneness in personhood, the the three members of the Trinity all functioning in perfect, essential unity. It's really quite amazing, isn't it? J.I. Packer has this great illustration, that when I, I read it years ago I looked it back up this week and it's so helpful here's what he says he likens the ministry of the Holy Spirit to a floodlight the type of light that you when you go to a here, here's a picture you go to a monument and you see how it's lit up Tom Pugh right Tom's like I would have done it differently up there, but, <laughs> right maybe you've been to Washington D.C. and you see the, the you know the Lincoln Memorial or the Jefferson Memorial when a floodlight is done right, you don't see where the lights are. In fact, it's designed that way. You're not supposed to see where the lights are placed. You're only supposed to see what's being illuminated, right? The direction of those lights. And that's what Packer says is what the Spirit does. Spirit doesn't say, look at me. The Spirit is the light that illuminates Christ and says, look at him. That's where the floodlight is directed. Does that make sense? That helped me all right let me wrap this up so i started out this morning by saying that the holy spirit is elusive and mysterious and i think that's true today there may be more confusion in the church today than at any time in my life about the spirit but passages like this one in john 16 are really key when when you get into a conversation with somebody about what the spirit does remember john 16 bring them back here because there's some abundantly clear things in this passage. The Spirit has a ministry. What He does, He takes all that belongs to God the Son, which was given to Him by God the Father in the beginning, and He convicts the world of all of this truth. All of the truth. He convicts the world. The truth about God. The truth about humanity. The truth about sin and righteousness and judgment. The truth about salvation. The truth about the church. And so much more. And thousands of years ago, He gave these things to a small group of apostles so that they could in turn communicate the very word of God to the world. This is the one thing, and we'll get more into this later on. The full and final expression of God's will, the final disclosure of God himself in Christ is what the Holy Spirit perfectly conveyed to the apostles so they could write it down and spread it across the globe. And so you need to know it's the Spirit who's given you that Bible in your lap. It's the Spirit that is giving you that Bible on your phone. That we have so much access to. The men who wrote it, Peter says, were carried along by who? By the Holy Spirit. As they wrote, it was a miraculous process that was God breathed. And through that process, we have today Jesus Christ revealed to us. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to know. Floodlight. Look at Jesus. Look at the Word, right? There's a reason why he's called the Word. Look at the Word. I have never seen the Lord Jesus Christ, said one very wise man, but he has written me a letter. 2,000 years removed from his death and resurrection, that's our conviction, isn't it? That is our, our faith. I've never seen Jesus, but he's written me a letter, and I trust in it. Today the Spirit teaches us and guides us and convicts us and comforts us. How? By pointing us back to Christ, by pointing us back to the principles of In the Word. So, friends, I'll just close with this. Never take that Bible for granted. It's the very Word of God. And let's just say, Thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, with one voice, we do say that together this morning. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for for coming and continuing the work that Jesus began. Thank you, Jesus for always saying and doing what the Father told you, for this perfect unity with the triune persons. But Lord, that we have a chance now to to have the Spirit within us, guiding us, teaching us, yes, even convicting us of our sins, but comforting us as well. What a privilege we have, Lord, that you have seen fit in your sovereignty to allow us to be part of this last age, to be part of the church age, to to have the indwelling spirit. Lord, may you prevent all of us here this morning from taking that for granted, but that we would have thankful hearts that you've done all this for us. Lord, thank you for your word, for the way it teaches us, the way it, it convicts us, Lord. I pray, God, that it will bear fruit this week as we go out beyond these walls and into our community. For your glory, we pray. Amen.